The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I called this talk Finding Freedom, or I could maybe call it Musings About Freedom, or something like that. Um, but the finding for me, the, the finding freedom part, the finding was really about um, understanding what it means to be a seeker, um, a person who wants to has desires to grow spiritually and the freedom part is hopefully what we aspire to. Small moments of freedom that we experience throughout daily life and then ultimate freedom that the Buddha talked about. So in terms of being a seeker, you might remember why you walked into the Dharma Hall the first time I certainly do. Or you might remember what brought you to the cushion for the first time or led you to this practice. Maybe the practice just made sense to you or, or maybe you knew someone, a mentor or a teacher or somebody that you regarded highly and you wanted to emulate that person. You wanted what they had. You saw something wise and beautiful in the way they carried themselves throughout their life and you you thought, yeah, I want that. I want to see what, how did she get that or how did they get that? Or if you're like me, maybe some suffering brought you straight into the Dharma Hall. <laughs> Probably a lot of us have had that experience where there was some problem, some challenge that we really didn't know how to get through. And we tried a lot of things, but it's certainly true for me. I tried a lot of things to manage anxiety and hadn't found the lasting impact that I'd wanted. And I didn't know what else to do, and so I sat down and got still. And most of the time, in the beginning, I really understood very little of what Mark was talking about, but there was enough that I understood that kept me wanting to come back and see if I could understand a little bit more. But even if we didn't feel broken in some way, we probably learned pretty quickly that suffering is something that we all know about. We all have our story. So at some point, we all became seekers. And there's nothing wrong with being a seeker um, or with having aspirations. In fact, it's a it's good to be honest with ourselves in that way, to, to know that we really care, that we have some desire to live a spiritual life or wake up. And the Buddha even encouraged us to aspire to have a fully liberated mind. So it's good, it's a good idea again and again in our practice to touch our aspirations, to know what they are, to revisit them not just one time in the beginning, but ongoing. And we might have daily aspirations like to learn how to work better with anxiety or physical pain or to be a more compassionate partner or friend or parent. And we may have deeper aspirations of having a completely liberated heart and mind.
So the second element of the Eightfold Path is translated as right thought or right intention or sometimes right aspiration. And the Eightfold Path is what the Buddha, la- the Buddha laid out in the Fourth Noble Truth as the way to complete freedom. So these are the things that when developed in the mind will lead to freedom. And there are three broad categories of the path, wisdom, morality, and concentration, and right aspiration and right view are a part of the right, are a part of the wisdom part of the uh, path. So it's important to see that aspiration is different from craving. So we might say, like, I have a desire to um, have a fully liberated mind, to be free of aversion or fear. And this is different than having a craving to be free from fear. And last, last week, Ramesh was teaching, if many of you were here for that, and he talked about the Eightfold Path a little bit, and he also talked about the Four Noble Truths, and he reminded us that the Buddha did not say that life is suffering. He said that suffering exists, right? There is suffering. And just like the Buddha did not say that life is suffering, he also did not say that desire causes suffering. My understanding is the Buddha said that attachment to desire causes suffering. So there's a difference there, right? So it's not that there's anything wrong with having a desire or an aspiration to live a spiritual life. That's good. That's wholesome. But it's when that our desire becomes an expectation that it becomes a problem or can lead to suffering. So what's the difference between a healthy aspiration or desire and an unhealthy desire? Well, an unhealthy desire is rooted in ignorance and usually comes with an expectation of change. And even healthy desires or aspirations can be beautiful intentions in the heart without an ultimatum or a contingency but just a beautiful intention, free of expectations or any particular outcome. But if we're not careful, these beautiful intentions or aspirations can tip into an unhealthy desire. So it's like a goal that's not met, right? So there's a difference between a goal and an intention. And like a goal that's not met, it can easily lead to frustration, right? Like, I have a goal to go to the gym every day, which is, and then I go, the first day I don't go, I might have really good reasons for not going, but I feel bad about not going. I get frustrated and I judge myself harshly and because it's a goal. But if I have an intention to 
live a healthy life, then everything matters. And I can reset that intention at any time. There's no real failure in that. And in fact, when even our wholesome aspirations or desires tip into an unhealthy zone, then when we notice that, it, even, it doesn't have to be a reason to judge ourselves harshly. It could just be a sign, like, oh, a beautiful sign that we're missing something, we're not paying attention to the attachment or the expectation that's also there. Matthew Brinsilver is a Dharma teacher in California with Against the Stream. Um, he is also a researcher. He was working at UCLA. I don't know if he's still doing that. He might be, but he's also, I think, leading one of the Against the Stream organizations in Oakland. I was listening to a Dharma talk that he gave a while ago about craving, and he was talking about following the breath, and he said, we expect each breath to pay dividends. And isn't that true? Like, we're like, if we just follow this breath, if we do it just right, that we, there's this kind of subtle expectation that w- it will yield something. And that's a, an example of when a wholesome intention tips into a, a little bit of attachment that's there. But we can realize that everything is workable, that nothing has to be a problem. And the next time we feel that tug of frustration or resentment that this last breath did not pay dividends, (laughs) did not precipitate or throw us into full enlightenment, we don't have to beat ourselves up for that because everything is workable. And we can be grateful that we saw it. then we don't have to be in denial anymore. We can begin again, which is probably the best tool we ever have in practice is our willingness to start over, to begin again. So when I get stuck in a meditation, in a sitting period, I might notice that the mind is just really attached. It's kind of just tight. There's something tight. And even though I see it, letting go is not happening. And I might at that point just reflect on my aspirations for practice. And what I've noticed that it makes the moment just a little bit bigger. And we get to find freedom through our own experimentation this way try different things and see what works, see what helps the mind loosen up a bit. The Buddha said, come and see for yourself. This is what we get to do in our practice. So what is freedom? Well, Gandhi said that freedom doesn't mean the absence of restrictions. It means possessing unshakable conviction in your choices in the face of an obstacle. Freedom doesn't mean the absence of restrictions. 
It means possessing unshakable conviction in your choices in the face of an obstacle. And here's an, op, uh, an illustration from Noah Levine's book, who is the leader of the Against the Stream organization. The book is called The Heart of the Revolution, and it's actually from the foreword in the book that I'll read. And these are Jack, Kornfield, Jack Kornfield's words. The heart of the revolution contains one of the most powerful and liberating messages in the world. Wherever you are, your heart can be free. Nelson Mandela showed this when he walked with amazing dignity and compassion out of 27 years of prison to become president of South Africa. You too can free your heart. You need not be trapped by your past. Individually and collectively, our hearts can be released from the sufferings of our history. I have seen this over and over again on retreats as meditators honorably face the pain of their history with courage, healing compassion and forgiveness, and learn to move on. I have seen this in prisons and hospices and AA meetings and among former victims and former combatants for peace in countries around the world. The sufferings of our families and community and the world are built on lies. Lies of fear and addiction, of racism, of trauma and hate. But they are not the end of the story. There is also a release from these lies. When my teacher Maha Gosananda, whose whole family was killed in the Cambodian genocide, gave teachings to 25,000 traumatized survivors in their refugee camp, I wondered what he could say to those who had lost so much. He took his seat with dignity and chanted the Buddha's words over and over. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love, love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. Soon, all 25,000 refugees were chanting with him, faces covered with tears, giving voice to a truth even greater than their sorrows. Forgiveness, compassion, and freedom to live your own life are available to you. These are your birthright. Freedom is the unshakable conviction that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And how easy it would have been for Maha Gosananda or any of those 25,000 trauma survivors to get angry and act out or at least not chant with him, right? But they didn't do that. Freedom is the ability of the heart to transform hatred into love. And this is maybe an extreme example. And enlightenment is also another extreme example. But what about the small examples that teach us about freedom in our daily life? How about every time we forgive a loved one? Or about when we find contentedness in a totally bland daily activity like washing dishes or folding laundry? What do these moments have to teach us about freedom?
The Buddha talked about freedom from suffering. Complete freedom is a mind that is completely free of the three poisons, greed, anger, and delusion, and the roots of greed, anger, and delusion. But a mind that is maybe not completely free from the roots of greed, anger, and delusion, maybe a mind like mine, there's still enough space and moments to hold, enough space and wisdom to hold and be with whatever arises. And this is a freedom that drops my defenses and helps me feel safe enough to take another look, to explore and be there. These are moments of freedom in my everyday experience. And we all have them. It's important that we notice them. After all, it would be hard to only notice anger and frustration and fear and resentment every time we came to the cushion, if that's all we noticed, or every time we opened our eyes or our mouth and walked around, if that's all we ever saw, it would be hard to feel inspired to continue to do this practice. So it's important that we notice the small moments of a free heart. They might inspire us to keep going. For many years, I've gone on this retreat in the summer. Um, TCVC, Twin Cities Vipassana Collective, organizes two retreats a year. Uh, One is in the summertime with Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters. And they've been coming here for more than 20 years. They're not teaching together anymore, but Kamala, and so they're splitting up. They come every other year. And this year in June, Kamala will be here teaching with Bonnie Duran. It's a wonderful nine-day retreat. It's local. It's about an hour and a half away from here at a nice retreat center. If you're looking for a way to do a longer retreat, maybe for the first time, I would really recommend that. And other people are shaking their heads in the audience because you've been there. So I was on this retreat, was sitting this retreat a few years ago, many years ago now, I think, at least five or six. (coughs) And there was a young teenager on retreat. And at the closing circle, it's a time for people to say, you know, how the retreat was for them. I remember this young guy saying, he just raised his hand, it was his turn, and he said, just very simply, I will become enlightened in this lifetime or die trying. (laughs) And his, the seriousness of which he said that was remarkable. And it wasn't the I will become enlightened in this lifetime part, it was actually the or die trying part, right? Because we might have this deep aspiration for complete freedom in our life, but what do we do in the meantime? Like, how do we make all of these ordinary moments count? So I had a sense that when he said that, he was going to be serious about noticing freedom in his life. So there are two parts to the equation, living so that there are moments of freedom and recognizing them when they're here. So living so that there are moments of freedom is maybe what teachers mean when they talk about living a virtuous life. 
And Mark has talked about living a virtuous life. Mark Nunberg, who's the guiding teacher here. When he talks about living a virtuous life, he sometimes says that at the end of the day, if you've lived a virtuous life, you won't have any regrets. <coughs> Christopher Titmus is uh, one of the founding teachers at Gaia House in England, Meditation Center in England. And he said, we have the potential to enlighten our life without going to a monastery or to meditate in a cave. Instead of submitting to the ups and downs of daily life, we start by bringing our awareness to bear on our inner life. It is the first step towards enlightenment. Freedom can mean a kind of fearless opening to the conditions of this life. The heart that is free is available to feel, feel it all. I've been a pretty experiential student of Buddhist practice. Um, study has often come after sitting on the cushion or noticing something in my daily life, and then I'll go back and see what my teachers have to say about that or find something in a book that supports uh, deepening my learning. <clears throat> As I've gotten to know freedom, I've noticed that it seems really similar to equanimity, freedom. I found a great short article on equanimity by Gil Fronsdahl. Gil is a Dharma teacher in California, one of the guiding teachers at Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. And he, he wrote about the seven mental qualities that support the development of equanimity. The article is just called Equanimity. And the last of these seven qualities is freedom. The first is virtue or integrity, having no regrets at the end of the day. The second is the sense of assurance that comes from faith. The third, support is a well-developed mind. The fourth is a sense of well-being. The fifth support is understanding or wisdom. The sixth is insight into a deep seeing of the way things are. And the last support is freedom, and here's what he says about freedom. The final support is freedom, which comes as we begin to let go of our reactive tendencies. We can get a taste of what this means by noticing areas in which we were once reactive but are no longer. For example, some issues that upset us when we were teenagers prompt no reaction at all now that we are adults. In Buddhist practice, we work to expand the range of life experiences in which we are free. So we could run a fun experiment and see how often we can notice the heart that's free in our daily lives. And I've been running this experiment in my own life <laughs> and seeing what I can find out. And I am not a quick decision maker. My partner would say, or she sometimes does say, you are so slow. But I would say, I'm not a fast decision maker. <laughs> And Judith Regeer was here, a teacher from Clouds and Water. She talked about how to make a decision. She said she takes a period of time, she gives herself a period of time to collect all the information she can possibly get from her friends and family or wherever else. And then when she, it's a decision-making moment, she knows that this is the moment, and she just goes straight from her gut and accepts all the consequences. 
she said that years ago here in the Dharma Hall, and I really took that in, like, oh, this can help me because I am not a fast decision maker. And so I've noticed that this, like, I really practice, like, accepting as soon as, like, now, for example, talking in front of all of you, it's really working on allowing whatever wisdom to manifest and then letting go of all the rest. I was um, introducing a teacher here a few weeks ago, Terry Karras, who I know. Terry, I know her professionally. I, she sits in a small group that I'm a part of, and I've talked to her lots of times. I had plenty to say about her, but sometimes this anxiety that I've worked with for many, many years, all of my adult life really, just gets strong and catches me off guard. And for whatever reason, for like 10 minutes before I was going to introduce her, it just was like, extremely strong and when if you've ever had anxiety like that the blood is not flowing to the areas of your brain that you need to think (laughs) so I was like this is the moment right I have to I have to just keep going I have to keep taking a step in the direction of this task I have to do even though the body is not completely free right the mind is not completely free I could feel the sensations of anxiety in my body. I knew I wasn't completely thinking and remembering all of that I had to say, but I had to trust that whatever was going to come out was going to come out and then completely let it go. So I did that, and I introduced her. I said what I had to say. I couldn't even tell you what I said right now. She wasn't mad at me, which was a good thing. <clears throat> and then we went into the meditation. And at that moment in the meditation, like for the next half an hour, I was really noticing how little resistance there was in the mind and heart. There wasn't a lot of holding on. And I was like, oh yeah, this is like a moment of freedom. The heart is really not holding on to what I said or didn't say right. There was some ruminating about it in the beginning, but there was, it was fairly easy, I would say, to drop it. Then I've also been noticing this attachment to time. Um, in simple ways like running, when running, I've been an off and on runner for a while and experimenting with running without a watch or without a destination or without a, without a number of minutes that I plan on running and how much more free the mind is to just engage in the activity rather than um, attacking a goal. Uh, and I noticed this too on the cushion in really subtle ways, like, well, not maybe not that subtle, but sitting with a, a timer or without a timer, with like a 30-minute goal or whatever number of minutes of a goal is different than, it feels different than just sitting and watching as if I could do that forever. In the beginning, our motivations or our aspirations for practice might be pretty self-centered. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not a bad thing to come into the Dharma Hall for any reason, to start practicing for any reason. And I know that I feel like I've had some good reasons to make my way in here, and I trust that all of us have had really good reasons for that. But eventually a more mature motivation shows up all on its own, a motivation for practice that understands that I'm practicing for you and you're practicing for me, that we're co-creating something together in this life. 
And this is where freedom really matters, the kind of freedom that is about a deep caring for each other in the social world that we live in. You can just look around at this room. It's so beautiful that all of these people, all of us, we don't know each other. We don't really know all of our stories. We know some probably have friends in the audience and others that we know well, but it's such a beautiful thing that we can come together with all of our injuries and bruises and wounds and create a safe enough place to sit down and be still together. Being seekers together, trying to find some freedom. So back to that foreword I read earlier from Jack Cornfield. Towards the end, he says, you will learn the revolutionary freedom and happiness that comes when you tell the truth and step out of deception, both your own and others. You will learn the revolutionary freedom and happiness that come when you tell the truth and step out of deception, both your own and others. And I know I have felt this freedom that is there in speaking my own truth in difficult moments, even when it's not popular, when it goes against the stream, or when my truth isn't part of a dominant paradigm. I was out at the retreat property, I think in March or so, with Dharma Corps. Dharma Corps is a queer meditation community group here at Common Ground, and a few of the people in that group went out, and I was out with them. And um, I also identify as queer. And it felt so, there was a sort of freedom that was just like being in a space with others who share something in common like that. It was really beautiful. And I didn't know that. Um, I, hadn't, I didn't expect that. And then there's this tricycle article that I've read a few times. Um, it's an interview with Gina Sharp, and the title is called This Race Matter in the Dharma Hall. It was in 2004, so quite a while ago. And Gina says that most white people tend to assume that they aren't invited to these retreats. She's talking about retreats that are for people of color. And she says, it's not that we want to exclude them. Last year, two came, and they were welcomed, and they were welcomed. We don't encourage it, however. I'll tell you what really confirmed my feelings about the need for separation. I was at a two-month retreat at Spirit Rock last year. There were two African Americans, one Hispanic man, two Native Americans, and me, out of about 100 people. In the middle of the retreat, an African American woman approached me and said, I really hate to disturb your retreat, but I just have to ask your name. I felt her loneliness, and it touched me deeply. We became good friends. I think she's pointing to that kind of freedom that is there in a, a space where you share some, something in common with someone else. And all we have to really do is look around at our society, our culture, and the structures we've all participated in building. And we can say that we haven't participated in building some of that. But mostly, that's just illusion speaking. We all have in some ways, even in our passivity, we've contributed to that. And we learn in this practice that intentions precede thoughts and thoughts precede action. 
So the truth is that all of this around us is a manifestation of our own hearts. And if we are a society that is not free, it is because our hearts are not free. If any member of our community is not free to be themselves, speak their truth, it is because we have co-created that environment together. You might remember when Irina Weissman was here in August 2015, she led a day-long workshop for white practitioners, helping us to understand what it means to integrate Dharma practice with our understanding of whiteness. Irina is a Dharma teacher. She had a long history with activism, and her parents were activists in South Africa, and they were kicked out of the country, and she grew up for at least part of her life in England, and I think she's more of, she lives in, on the West Coast now, but when asked what her home is, she said something like, uh, in queer communities all over the country, or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, she was one of the first Dharma teachers who led retreats for the queer community. We were having a meal with her before one of the programs she taught, and she was she made a really clear it was a really clear and really confident statement that activism is a necessary part of spiritual practice. And what I heard when she said that was like it's really important to pay attention to our social world, the world that we co-create together. And as it is an expression of what's in our hearts now. Well, maybe I'll just end with this lovely quote from Mother Teresa. It's actually on a banner that's hanging in our, the bedroom where our God kids stay when they come to sleep at our house. She said, if we have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Thank you for listening. I think I'll open it up for questions, if there are any. I'd just ask you to repeat the last quote. Sure. Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other could be something that we reflect on and practice with for a really long time, I think. And we'll just pass the mic around. If anybody has, you don't have to have questions, you can have comments. Those are welcome too. Well, thank you. It was a beautiful talk. Mm-hmm. I, um, I definitely felt some, um, I guess, real, some related um, when you're talking about anxiety and like, and you're you're trying really hard to say the right thing or do the right thing and you kind of hold on to this image of you know what your ego really wants to achieve and um i find that it's it's very um i feel like it also depends on trust and and trusting yourself that you are enough and that whatever happens will happen and it's okay and i feel like that's kind of um Stepping outside of those stories that we tell ourselves is is something that I've I've um, definitely experienced to be helpful with that. So I I kind of reflected on your talk and definitely got that out of it. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, I have a couple of questions, really. I guess the most abstract one is when people talk about love, like Christianity, 
and also hatred, but I've never really gotten an idea of what are they talking about. And I, I'm still sort of up in the air about what specifically does that mean? Does it mean hugging people on the street or does it mean, you know, waving politely to people as they go by? Or how is love really manifested uh, through uh, this uh, B Buddhist uh, religion or whatever it is? Yeah. Well, the Buddha said, come and see for yourself. So I would just practice with that question. Like that's what, yep. and that's what we're called to do, to really just see, like when I, you just like first tune into what that feeling of love is like in your life. Mm -hmm. And then you go looking for it. Like, oh, it's there. Oh, it showed up here. And then get to know it a little bit. Like what is the nature of love? What I call love? What are the qualities? What is it? What is its texture, the flavor, and kind of feel my way through it that way. And when I use love, I might also mean loving kindness, right? And that is just a, a way to, you can also call it friendliness. It's not a rejecting or um, grasping. It's not a holding or a pushing. It's just a, a friendliness that's, that welcomes. So you could look for love or welcoming energy or loving kindness and, and see where it shows up and what it's like. Thank you very much. Yeah. Also, as long as I still have the mic, I just wanted to thank you for your very kind manner. It's really wonderful to experience. So thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you. You guys are really attentive. I appreciate that. I have a friend who um, sends out an email, and she's an artist, and she always writes something at the end of the email that is so loving. And um, So I thought I'd read this as a way of dedicating the merit of our practice tonight. So if we could just get still one last time together and appreciate ourselves for caring enough to make our way to the cushion and appreciating all of our teachers and wise people in our lives who have taught us something and enabled us to be learners together. May all love surround us as we witness and support the dawning of a new day. May all love continue to open our hearts and guide our feet. May all love guide us as we tell the truth about ourselves and hear the truths of others. May we extend these wishes to all beings all over the world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.